Friends, let me invite you to take your Bibles and, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. You'll find that passage on page 226 of the little Bibles that should be within arm's reach of you on the, the pew in front of you or the seat in front of you. While you're flipping to page 226, I have a confession to make. I play fantasy football. I, uh, if you don't know what that is, I'm tempted to keep it that way for your sake. I'm not sure it's a value add to anybody's life. I'll simply say that it's a game you play based on a game other people are playing, aiming at a very small scale glory and sometimes some sort of trophy or very small amount of cash. I'm not proud of it. I'm not that good at it if my track record is anything. And I'm not claiming it's the best possible use of your leisure time but I play it and I have been mainly losing the same fantasy football league for about 15 years at this point uh, in fact I never had much success until I convinced my firstborn son to play with me and we've been co-managing our team together for the last few years and since then we've actually been pretty good like like championship level good and I trace the transformation in my fortunes, not just to Walter joining me in the saddle, but to the fact that in the year 2021, we drafted Cincinnati Bengals rookie wide receiver, Jamar Chase, before anybody knew what he was. See, in fantasy football, you get to choose your own players, but you have to do it in turns with other players people who are playing in the league with you. You don't just get to take everybody you want. You take people you want in order. It's a draft. So that year, Jamar Chase was coming off a year when he didn't play football. He had some off-the-field issues, and nobody knew for sure if he'd be able to make the jump from college to professional anyways. And lots of people in our draft passed on him. We passed on him like eight to ten times before we ended up actually choosing him for our team. And that guy basically won us the league championship that year. We rode him all year long. We rode him all the way up until championship week. New Year's Day or the day after maybe in 2022, I guess it would have been, Jamar Chase on the week when all the fantasy glory was on the table brought in 11 catches for 266 yards, three touchdowns, a stat line that could have basically won the game for us all by itself. But you know what happened next year? Jamar Chase wasn't a secret anymore. Very few people passed on Jamar Chase in the 2022 draft. And by the time our turn to pick came around, he was gone. Now we play against Jamar Chase once or twice a year. Now, at least on the few times we play him, we don't love Jamar Chase anymore. Now we, metaphorically speaking, hate him. <laughs> same guy, same skill, same track record, very different reactions to him based on whether he was on our team or against our team. Our reaction to this guy is, our, is a sign, a powerful sign of where our ultimate loyalty lies, of how he bears on what matters most to us. David is a lot like that in the story we're going to consider together this morning. 
You know, but in the story we've just come off of, chapter 16 and 17 of 1 Samuel, David is the center of the action. Like he's the man driving the action forward. He, he goes toe-to-toe with Israel's greatest enemy, Goliath, brings him down, lops off his head. Huge victory for Israel. David is the hero of that story from beginning to end. In this story, it's almost like David is a prop. He's there through all of it. But the story told from chapter 18 through chapter 20 is really focused on how two different men react to the same David. How Jonathan and how Saul react to God's anointed one. The camera begins with Jonathan, then shifts to Saul, stays with Saul, then shifts back to Jonathan, but always showing us one main thread. Who is David to them? How will they respond to God's anointed? When he succeeds, are they happy about it or upset about it? Do they love him? Do they hate him? And by watching Jonathan and Saul respond to David, what this author is doing for us is showing us two ways to respond to Jesus, who is David's greater son, who is God's ultimate anointed one, his Christ, our Messiah, or our greatest threat. I want to begin by by reading the first few verses of our story for this morning. I want to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word while I do that. I'm going to pick up in chapter 18, verse 1. I'll read through verse 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the son of Jonathan, or the soul of Jonathan, was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think the best way for us to learn what we need to from this story this morning is first of all, just to walk through the story and then come back to what it has to teach us. I wanna walk through the story showing you the four things that you need to see here, then give you two things to take home with you. Four things you need to see in the story as we walk through it. Two things to take home with you at the end. So first, Jonathan loves David. That's the first thing to see in this story. It just jumps off the page in these verses that I've just read for you. David has just come in from his combat with Goliath. That's what we looked at last time. When all of Israel was pinned down by the taunts of this one mighty warrior, David stood up to him went toe-to-toe with him. And in the strength of the Lord, he defeated him and scattered the Philistines far and wide. And Jonathan, he doesn't need to see anything more. He is all in on David. And by all in, I mean like all in. We're meant to be stunned by how completely Jonathan identifies himself with David in these verses. And then we're meant to ask, why? Verse 1 tells us that Jonathan loved David as his own soul. In other words, in in his heart, 
Jonathan saw his interests and David's interests as completely aligned, as if they were one person. He can't see himself without seeing David. He can't see David without seeing himself. In his heart, he's identified with him completely. And so, verse 3, he covenants himself to David, meaning he doesn't keep this bottled up inside. He's not just fawning over him from a distance. He's like, I'm, I'm yours. He pledges his absolute commitment to David. He doesn't see himself as this mercenary who, who pledges a sword in exchange for a payment for as long as the checks are continuing to cash. He gives him his life. A covenant means my life is yours, everything. And the most stunning thing of all in these verses has got to be the fact that Jonathan is right here transferring his own position, his own identity in the world over to David. He gives him his royal robe. He gives him his royal armor. He gives him the sword and the bow that have made a name for him in Israel as one who goes out before the people and comes in before the people who fights the people's battles for them. He now takes all that he was known for and even the throne that was his to inherit and he says, yours, it's all yours, I'm with you. We're meant to be stunned by this. David's rise is pushing him right out of line for the throne and overshadowing all that he was to his people to this point. And Jonathan is saying, you must increase. I must decrease. I'm good with it. That's what I want. Why? I think we're meant to see that Jonathan is someone who wants to see God's people saved by God's power for God's glory. That's what he cares about. He wants to see God's people saved by, by God's power for God's glory. And when he looks at David, he sees God using David to do exactly what he wants to see done. He can see it. He knows the Lord is with David. And because the Lord is with David, Jonathan is with David too. It helps remember the context here. When David went to battle against Goliath, do you remember what he said? When Goliath is mocking him and, and cursing him by Goliath's gods, he looks up at Goliath with that huge spear and javelin and sword and all the armor and he says, I don't come at you with that stuff. I don't come with a javelin or a spear or a sword. I got nothing, but I come to you. In the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, I come in his name. You will see who he is this day. And the reason David comes to him, David sees that whole battle as theological warfare. He, he comes to him because he wants the whole earth to know, he says, that there is a God in Israel. That's what David's fighting for. That's what Jonathan wants in his heart. So when Jonathan looks at the battlefield and sees that headless giant, he doesn't care who won that victory. He won that victory in David. His heart's desire was fulfilled in that moment. He's good with it. Look, the Lord is with him doing exactly what I wanted to see him do. That's what Jonathan lives for. And this is all he needs to see. He just wanted to know that Jamar Chase plays for his team winning glory for his God. And for him, it's game on. I, whatever you need, it's yours. Now, 
Switch to Saul. Camera pans over from Jonathan responding exactly as he's supposed to respond to Saul's very different reaction. The second thing to see in this story is that Saul fears David. Jonathan loves him, but, but Saul fears him. It's the polar opposite response, but it takes a little more time to show up. You know, at first, Saul pulls David onto his bandwagon. In verse 2, Saul has seen the same victory Jonathan did, so Saul takes David and won't let him go home to his father's house. No, you work for me now. Uh, you're you're going you're gonna to go out ahead of my armies from this point forward. So he does go out verse 5. And he's successful wherever Saul sends him. And Saul sets him over the men of war because of that. He's, he's happy because he sees David's victories as, as extending his reach, as reinforcing his reign. And it's all so far so good until Saul overhears the soundtrack playing behind David's battle scenes. Look at verse 6. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. He's loving this. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands. Oh, he's loving this. See, this is playing out exactly like he thought it would. When David wins, I win because David works for me. When David wins, credit flows up, right? David's reach extends mine. His success builds my reputation. David is identified with me, right? Wrong. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. This is not good. Not for Saul. All in a flash, he sees, oh, David's got his own name that's ringing out. And his name's growing bigger than mine. And so he says, they've ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. See, now Saul knows David. David's definitely Jamar Chase in this analogy. But he's not on my team. He's got his own team. He's raising his profile. He's extending his agenda. In a flash, Saul recognizes he's not with me ultimately. And that turns David into an enemy. Friends, I wonder, have you, have you ever considered your envy or jealousy of other people as a window into the loyalty of your heart? When you experience it, you're getting an opportunity to look inside and see what rules you there. When you feel envy, as all of us do, let me encourage you not just to confess that as a sin to the Lord, as I trust you're doing, and not even just to ask the Lord to take it away, as I trust you're doing, but to ask the Lord to show you your own heart through it. What do I want most? What matters to me above all? So that then you can drive your heart back to him for the healing, the satisfaction, and the loyalty that will give you rest.
Third thing to see in this story. Saul, you know, we've seen Jonathan loves David, but, but Saul fears David. So number three, next, Saul attacks David. And this is the biggest section of, this, of the story that we'll consider this morning. Saul attacks David from the middle of chapter 18 through all of chapter 19. Saul tries one thing after another to bring David down. And one time after another, the Lord just thwarts his plan like it's nothing and actually uses what Saul tries to do to take out David to advance David and God's agenda for him. I think, I mean, this, this sequence is just absolutely incredible, the way that it's written. It's written for thick irony, and, and it's, it's even comedy. I think the best analogy for the way Saul comes off in this section is Wiley Coyote from the old cartoons. You know, his traps never work, and it's worse, that they never, it's worse than never working. It, it's not just that he can't catch the, the roadrunner. It's that his traps always end up bringing him down, too. I'm getting a lot of blank stares. I think maybe Wiley Coyote is like... A little outdated. Google it. Kids, you'll love it. It's hilarious. This guy is a fool. And he's always doing, he's always doing stuff to try to catch the roadrunner. But it always backfires on him and gets him almost killed over and over and over again. And that's kind of what Saul is doing here in these, in these verses. Let me show you. It's one, one thing after another. Let me just track them with you and show, pull this thread. Saul first tries to get rid of David in battle. You know, it's clear to him now. He's got his eye on him. David, it's going to be trouble for me. Verse 12 says, he was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. Saul's putting it all together. God's not with me anymore. Now God's with David. I got to get rid of him. I guess maybe God will then be back with me again as his fallback. Whatever he was thinking, whatever his heart desired. Saul removes David, verse 13, from his presence and makes him a commander of a thousand. Think of this as one of those promotions that's meant to get somebody killed. <laughs> he puts him in charge of a thousand men to put a target on his back. You know, this is meant to make him more, more hittable by the Philistine enemies. He wants the Philistines to want David dead so that they'll kill him. But verse 14 whole thing backfires. David had success in all his undertakings for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful, all of him. And all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul's plan backfires. His next passive-aggressive strategy is to use his daughters as a trap. He offers David the hand in marriage of his oldest daughter, then withdraws that, gives her to someone else, finds out that, his, that a younger daughter named Michael loves David already, and offers Michael to David, verse 21 says, that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Not thinking about what Michael wants, that she loves this man, or what, da- what would be good for David to have a, a wonderful godly wife and be part of his household. No, he's only thinking about trapping David so that the Philistines will get him. And as this story, as this scene proceeds, we learn what the snare would actually be. See, David isn't a rich man. And it was, it was their custom to bring a bride price into a new wedding. Like you would, you would basically make an honorable gift in exchange for this bride's hand in marriage. David has nothing. David objects about that. He's like, who am I to become the king's son? I mean, I'd love to, but I don't have anything to offer you. And then you can see that sneaky evil smile spread across Saul's face as David plays right into his hands. I'll tell you what you can give me. Well, look to the text, verse 25. Thus you shall say to David, 
The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. It's one thing to kill one giant. Let's see if he can handle a hundred Philistines at once. Surely not. But (laughs) he was wrong again. When he told this to David, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law, verse 26. And before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given to Saul in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, he was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. David brings twice what Saul asked him for. He's closer to the throne than ever. He's now living under Saul's own roof as a part of Saul's family. It backfires all over again. And in chapter 19, it gets even worse for Saul. The daughter that he meant as a trap for David becomes David's escape hatch once Saul has decided he wants him dead and decides to even mention that to his servants. Verse 19, or verse 1 of chapter 19, Saul speaks to Jonathan, his son, all his servants, that they should kill David. He's now a marked man. It's not just happening inside Saul's little machinations. It's out there. I want him dead. Go get him. Jonathan talks him down for a little while in the first few verses of chapter 19. And Saul seems like he's willing to listen to reason and to relent, but he, it doesn't last long. There's war again. David goes out, fights, wins another big battle, and everybody loves him even more than ever. And so Saul sends messengers to David's house to watch him. Verse 11, that he might kill him in the morning. Look what Michael, David's wife, does. First she reasons with David. If you don't escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through the window and he fled away and escaped. And Michael took an image, like a, like a household god, a statue, and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David saying, Bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with the pillow of goat's hair at its head. And Saul said to Michael, Why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he's escaped? And Michael answered Saul, He said to me, Let me go. Why should I kill you? You see what's happened here? (laughs) Foiled again! The woman meant to trap him lets him down through the window and covers it all with this creative design to deceive Saul and his messengers until David has time to get away. Saul just can't get out of his own way. And the peak ridiculousness in this whole series of ridiculous examples has to be at the end of chapter 19, where Saul sends messengers to find David where he's escaped. He's with Samuel at Samuel's house in Ramah and the messengers of Saul come to capture him there. And as soon as they get within reach, God sends his spirit on them and the messengers who were meant to kill David start prophesying before the Lord. Look at the, look at the end of the chapter. 
Saul sends messengers, verse 20, to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time and they also prophesied. Then he himself, Saul, went to Ramah and came to the great well that is in Secu. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the spirit of God came upon him also. And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes and he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? This story basically speaks for itself, doesn't it? I don't know what all that prophesying was about, to be honest. I haven't read anyone who really knows what this was all about. I mean, the, the word for prophesying sometimes just means out of control. It's the same word that's used when David or when Saul earlier hurls a spear at David in a fit of rage. That was described as prophesying, meaning he was so overcome by the emotion of that moment. He couldn't contain himself and just throws the spear at Saul. One way or another, it's clear what's happening here. God mocks. He laughs at Saul's attempt to bring down what he is doing. The point of the story is crystal clear, and it fits with the whole chain of stories. It is foolishness to stand against the Lord and his anointed. Remember back in verse 12? Saul sees that the Lord is with David. He knows who gives David his victories. And he comes at David harder because the Lord is with him. That means he's not just attacking David. This isn't just a rivalry for the throne between two competitors. He's attacking God. And look how pitiful he is. The more he aims for control, the less control he has. The more he tries to harm David, the more harm he brings on himself. He's Wiley Coyote. And this story is here to tell us not just how foolish it is to stand against the Lord. It's meant to show us how good it is to have the Lord standing for you. If God is for you, friends, no one can stand against you. I mean, in David's world, nobody had more power to harm him than Saul did. And that guy was pulling out all the stops to bring David down. And for most of it, David is clueless. He doesn't even know what's going on behind the scenes. He just thinks Saul wants him as a son-in-law. He doesn't know he's trying to trap him through Michael. He doesn't know what Saul's doing and giving him a promotion. He thinks Saul likes him. He has no idea that Saul is gunning for him. And at every point, the Lord protects him. The Lord defends him. The Lord elevates him exactly where he wants him to be. Christian friends, he, you know, the Lord is with you too. To be in Christ is to have the promise that the Lord is with you. That he works for you beyond what you can even ask or imagine. That he is doing things in your life, even through the evil things may be done against you. To establish you, protect you, and carry you all the way home. You have more for you then will ever be against you if you are in Christ, just like David did. Jonathan loves David. 
Saul fears him. So Saul attacks David. And the fourth thing to see, the final thing to see in this story, before we look to what we learn from it, is that Jonathan defends David. Jonathan defends David. That happens in chapter 20. The camera shifts back to Jonathan from Saul for the final frame in this story full of contrasts. Jonathan has been a peacemaker all along. But he reaches his moment of truth. He will finally be forced to choose between his father and his friend. At the beginning of the chapter, uh, David leaves Ramah, Samuel's town, and meets up with Jonathan. Verse 1. What have I done? He asks Jonathan. What is my guilt? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? It's a fair question. Jonathan's still kind of innocent about all this. He's not buying it. Far from it, Jonathan says. You shall not die. You don't bench Jamar Chase in this situation. Of course you don't. You're so good for us, so good for our people. My father would never do anything. Besides, he doesn't do anything great or small without disclosing it to me. Why should he hide this from me? It's not so. You're not going to die. He can't believe that his father would be so crazy, so foolish. And so David comes up with a plan to confirm Saul's posture once and for all. The next day is going to be a new moon when they would have a special feast and scheduled sacrifices to the Lord to go along with that feast. David, because he's part of Jonathan's family now and part of his court, he'd be expected to be there. So the plan is for him not to come and for Jonathan to see how Saul responds to it. If he's fine with it, then he's fine with David. If he's angry that David's not there, it'll be a sign he wants David dead. The plan is set. Jonathan agrees to do anything he can. And he works out a delivery system for news one way or the other. After the dinner, he's going to return to this field where they're talking all through chapter 20. David will be hiding there and Jonathan will fire three arrows as if he's shooting at a target. If he tells his servant that the arrows are over here on this side, come back towards me, David will know he can come back in. If he says, no, they're further, they're beyond you, David will know to run, to hightail it out of there, that the Lord is sending him away. The plan is set. Now, for the sake of time, jump with me to the crucial scene in verses 30 to 34. David is missing. The first night, Saul explains it away in his mind as some sort of ritual uncleanness that's kept him from the table. But when he's gone a second night, Saul demands an explanation. And Jonathan simply answers him as they had agreed in advance that he would. But that simple, innocent answer touches a nerve with Saul. It shows that when it comes to David, Saul is always just on the edge of madness. The slightest touch to that nerve and he's on fire. He sees straight through Jonathan's ruse. And now all that fire towards David is aimed at his own son, Jonathan. Verse 30. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? In case you're wondering, that clunky English translation is loosely covering the fact that he's using the Hebrew to cuss out his own son about his son's mother, his own wife. And in verse 31, he makes one last appeal to Jonathan to see things his way through his agenda and what matters to his heart. As long as the son of Jesse lives on earth, 
Neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Can't you get that, Jonathan? It's him or you. So send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. See this my way, Jonathan. He's the threat to your future. Bring him here. But Jonathan won't be swayed. He doesn't want what his dad wants. In the moment of truth, when there's no more room to embrace his father and his friend, Jonathan chooses David. Verse 32. Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? And choosing David, identifying completely with God's anointed, Jonathan gets what David got. Saul, verse 33, hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. If he won't see it Saul's way, he'll taste Saul's spear. Verse 35, in the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, run and find the arrows that I shoot. As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, go in peace because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed and Jonathan went into the city. It's quite a story, isn't it? What's this story meant to teach us? I'm convinced the story has shown us in vivid detail that there are two ways to respond to God's anointed one. Saul and Jonathan both faced their choice when they met with David and saw that the Lord was with him. They both saw David and they both saw that the Lord was with him. We face that same choice now in Jesus, David's greater son. David and all that he did was building this wave of momentum for God's own son to come into God's world as God's anointed king to rule over all. And we live on this side of his coming and you are in earshot of this word right here, which means every one of you faces this choice. Who is God's anointed to you? The most important thing about us is who Jesus is to us. So facing God's anointed with the last few minutes that I have here this morning, I want to encourage you, don't be Saul, be Jonathan. Two takeaways this morning. Don't be Saul. 
Do not be Saul. Be Jonathan. Friends, don't be Saul. See, Saul, from as soon as he's come onto the stage, he's been treating God's anointed just like he treated God himself from the very beginning. At best, a contractor. See, for Saul, his interest in God from the beginning of his character in this story has always hinged on God's usefulness to him. And when David first gets on the scene, that's who David is to him. He loves the fact that David got Goliath out of the way. He loves the fact that he wins wherever he sends him out. And he loves the fact that when he comes riding back into town, the women are singing about Saul, at least for a little while. So long as Saul's on the throne, so long as Saul's calling the shots, so long as Saul gets to do what's right in Saul's eyes and God seems to be executing Saul's vision for life, it's great. Oh, friends, do not, do not treat God and his anointed as a means to your ends. Because if you do, it is only a matter of time before you will see God as a threat to your agenda a threat to you when what he's doing doesn't square with what you want him to do. How could you know if that's in you right now? I think you should look for where you feel afraid to pray to him. Your will be done. Where do you fear praying? Your will be done. I think you should look for where you may have felt angry towards God because of what he's already done that you didn't want or what he may do that you fear or what he has not done that you've asked him for. I think you may just simply look for where you see yourself in Saul's experience. I mean, maybe you look at Saul and you're thinking, I've never thrown a spear at one of my kids. It hasn't come to that yet. So I'm doing all right. I'm feeling pretty good about that. And I hope that that's true. Maybe you've never ended up prophesying naked overnight. But can you see yourself in his insecurity? The fact that he clearly feels himself living, teetering on the edge, grasping at anything that can lock him down. Can you see himself in his, see yourself in his craving for control? Can you see yourself in his broken relationships with people who don't share his agenda? Or in his emotional outbursts that that he can't control? Friends, there is a warning here for us just in looking at the consequences of being like Saul. It's not just that it's offensive to God. It is offensive to God. God does put Saul in his place. But it's also harmful for you and for everybody around you. See, you can't bear the weight Saul is trying to bear over his future. You don't know what's coming. You don't know what would be best. You don't know what must be and how you'll make it happen. I mean, just look how clueless Saul is to all that's happening. He's over here flailing around while, while God just does what God's going to do. He ends up a fool. And just like Saul, you, you aren't qualified to micromanage your future. You're just not fit for the throne of your life. So give it up. Don't be Saul. Be Jonathan. Be Jonathan. See, where Saul was looking for a contract, Jonathan just plunges his whole life, headfirst dive into a covenant. And that makes all the difference. 
Saul wanted a hired hand. Jonathan just wants whatever he's getting. See, my whole Jamar Chase fantasy football example only goes so far. I talked about how great it is to have him on your team and how terrible it is to have him on any other team. All true enough. But when it comes to Jesus, the point is that you want to make sure you're, that, 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 that you're on his team. Not, not that he's on your team, that you're on his team. The point is to get on his team. And Jonathan gets that the way to make sure the Lord is with you is to make sure you're with David. Because it's obvious that the Lord is with him. And now when, when David's greater son comes into the world, he comes into the world as Emmanuel, as God with us. You want the Lord with you? Get with Jesus. Jesus is where you access the power and promise of the Lord. Jesus is where you get to aim your life at God's agenda and give up the pretense of aiming him at yours. Loyalty to Jesus is how you know the Lord is with you. And that's what Jonathan models so well for us. I think the most striking scene, perhaps in this story full of striking scenes, is not Jonathan's posture to David when he's willing to step aside and let David lead, not the flack that he's willing to take from Saul by shielding David, but the fact that he is attaching his future to David's future. When David is the one who's on the run, when David is the one with the powerful enemies and nowhere to lay his head, when, when it seems like Jonathan is protecting David, Jonathan looks at the whole situation, not in light of his present circumstances, not in light of what's playing out around him then and there, but through the eyes of faith, knowing where all this is heading. Chapter 20, verse 15, 14 and 15. If I'm still alive, he says to David, please show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. Do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. You see it? When Jonathan looks at David, he knows because he's God's anointed, his throne is going to stand. It's just a matter of time. He will rule until all his enemies are made a footstool for his feet and are cut off from the face of the earth. On the surface, it looks like I'm protecting him. But from the eyes of faith, Jonathan is the vulnerable one. And either the Messiah shows him steadfast love or he dies. Either that steadfast love preserves his future or he'll be cut off like all those who stand against the only king there is. So he says to him, take my life. It's yours. Just give me your future. Take all my life. Give me your future or I die. Friends, that's what it is to be a Christian. It's all right here. It's what Jesus meant when he said to repent and believe the gospel. It's, when, it's where you say, Jesus, your wish is my command. And where, and where you say to him, just make sure your future is my future. Saul wasn't wrong when he said to Jonathan, so long as God's anointed lives, your kingdom will never be established. That part is true. If Jesus is on the throne, there is no room for you up there. It's as if Saul is screaming, you won't be in charge. You won't get any glory. You won't be able to do whatever's right in your own eyes. What about your vision for your life? You won't be able to go where you want, treat people however you want, sleep with whoever you want, make and spend your money however you want. As long as he lives, your throne will never be established. Saul's right. He's screaming in the voice of the serpent from the garden. You do you, Jonathan. 
But Jonathan says, I'll take that trade. Give it to me. I'm good with it. Just give me a stake in your future. Just give me your steadfast love lest I die. And friends, if you want a stake in Jesus' future, it does mean coming off the throne of your life. But you can depend on this covenant because he came here to make it with you. You don't even offer it to him first. He came saying, my blood for your life, my body broken for you. You want on this covenant, it's yours, come. I'll take it from here. Friends, make that trade. You will never be sorry you did. Let's pray to him for the strength to believe. Father, we pray that you would help us to trust your anointed one and not ourselves. Give us the faith you've shown us in this wonderful model. And we pray that you would uphold that faith for as long as we live. We pray this to you in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.